Welcome to URI's podcast series, a podcast proposed by the Armament Industry European Research Group. So welcome to the second episode of URI's new podcast series, a new format to encourage fresh strategic thinking in the field of European defense industrial policies. In this episode, we will continue discussing the post-Ukraine defense budget increases and their impact on the European defense industry. Today, we have the pleasure to welcome Trevor Taylor, Professional Research Fellow in Defense Management at RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute, and Scientific Advisor of ARIS to discuss the case of the United Kingdom. Thank you, Trevor, for accepting our invitation. Good morning. What is the impact of the Ukraine war on the defense budget of the United Kingdom? And how will this budget evolve in quantitative and structural terms? This is a complicated question. The Statista website finds that the UK has provided almost 4 billion euros in military aid to Ukraine so far. That is much more than Germany or France. It's almost more than the two of them combined. And it's much more than the EU institutions, uh, which have actually focused on financial aid. But it's too early to say with much precision about the impact of the uh, of Ukraine on the defense budget itself, not least for the technical accounting question. Uh, discussions, I think, are still going on between the Ministry of Defense and the Treasury about what are the real costs of some of the aid to Ukraine and how those costs should be calculated. That relates particularly to how the value of things held in store, which were the early things that were sent, how they should be assessed in accounting terms, whether depreciation should be used and at what rate. More widely, there's the matter of whether all the extra things that the Ministry of Defense has bought should be treated as the equivalent of unforeseen operational requirements that occur in wartime when these could not have been planned when the core budget for 22-23 was put together, the MOD would, would ask for extra money. Uh, I mean, the, but the UK, uh, the MOD has just announced that it's completing the delivery of an extra 1,000 surface-to-air missiles, and it's training uh, and basically equipping more than uh, 9,000 Ukrainian recruits. I think there are 13,000 recruits in training here so at the, at the moment. It's not revealed the costs of all these or how they should actually be calculated and then built into the allocation to defense. So quite what it's doing to the current defense spend rather than the defense budget is is not clear. What we can say is that the Ukraine conflict has sparked an effort which is currently underway of how the 2021 integrated review of defense Uh, and security policy should be revised. The results won't be out for uh, some weeks. And and actually, in my view, might be thought premature anyway, because we don't know what the situation is going to be with regard to Ukraine, perhaps in a year's time. Um, if, If the conflict is still going on in a year, then we really can't anticipate any a quick resolution of it. If it's been settled, what's the nature and what is the, going to be the nature of future, uh, <clears throat> if you like, UK or European or NATO-Russian relationship? Um, so <clears throat> I, I think the my, my own view is that the review is a bit premature, but it's underway. Um, <clears throat> and uh, and we, we I think the government's going to come out with something relatively soon, perhaps early in the new year. 
Now, how that feeds into the size of the defence budget, which is perhaps your <coughs> the core issue here. Uh, back in 2020, there was a, 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 an unusual ad hoc commitment by the government. This is before Ukraine obviously kicked off uh, to add four billion to capital spending over the next four years. And the idea of that was to make the equipment plan uh, affordable. Um, the Ukraine crisis has acknowledged the has forced the acknowledgement of the need to increase defence spending, um, but the economic crisis that's been uh, marked by inflation uh, and that peaked with the uh, collapse of the pound under the very brief trust administration is obviously forcing a rethink. On the 17th of this month, uh, which is in a couple of days time as we record this, but on the 17th of this month, we'll learn what defence will actually be allocated for the 23-24 financial year which starts uh, at the beginning of April. Now, my expectation is that uh, in this particular year, the, the MOD will get a, a real cut. It might not look like a money cut, but there'll be a real cut, uh, but it, it won't be a savage one. Over the longer term, I think the UK uh, is, is ready to face up to the fact that more needs to be spent on defence because of the nature of the transformed relationship of the nature of, the, of, of, of Russia and also to a certain extent the kind of challenges. So what we might see is a, a, a dip until the economy recovers or a, a levelling out until the economy recovers. And then I think there'll be a readiness to, to push it up again. Um, in terms of the equipment budget, which obviously we, we're very concerned about, um, I think that you know the UK uh, will continue to spend a high proportion of uh, the budget on on new equipment. The UK traditionally spends between uh, 20% and 25% of the budget on on new equipment, higher than most, uh, but comparable, I think, with 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 some. And and this, I think, will will continue. Uh, the Ukraine conflict is raising the question about whether we should be spending more on stocks and perhaps less on new equipment. Uh, but those sorts of questions have, have, have not been addressed yet. Um, uh, and the, the, uh, the, that, those are long term and big issues for, for all European countries, really. Thank you very much. Um, you tackled a, a lot of uh, very interesting issues. Um, can you uh, can you tell us a bit more about the capability priorities? What are um, the the major uh, capability priorities um, in the UK uh, for the next year that the UK has identified? Uh, maybe also uh, after the war in Ukraine. And would you say that uh, priority is rather given to um, long term planning, or is it more uh, given to filling capability gaps quickly? Well, um, <clears throat> I think that the um... There isn't a, a, a big sense of a rush to fill UK capability gaps uh, very quickly, uh, but and, and in many ways, the focus of much of uh, defence is actually uh, been on how to address the uh, de defence industrial side, uh, rather like France has done for years, the um, the UK is now trying to use its defence budget both to generate capability and to sustain an, an advanced defence industrial capability. There's a recognition that of this that this is you know really terribly important. 
which perhaps has been neglected. So um, it's difficult to, <clears throat> I don't, the, the sort of priority uh, projects are the, 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 the problem projects. Uh, that, but you know, it, it's 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 very much you know there is the combat air issue. There, there's the issue of um, maritime capability, um, where we they're looking at some problems with you know that there's been a bit neglect of support ships uh, of the support roles rather than the the uh, combat warfighting ships. Information area continues to be uh, a big challenge. Uh, there is. The government has got an interest in taking more activity in space, but that's not too prominent. We have space communications very is is an area which is sort of uh, being pushed forward and moving to a new generation of uh, communication satellites, Skynet six. So uh, there are not big pressures on uh, you know sort of big capability gaps that the UK can can recognise, but there is a question about. What's the shape of capability? Should we be shaped for a long-term conventional conflict such as the Ukrainians are having to experience? Uh, how do we shape our forces so that we deter? Because we don't actually want to fight anybody. We want to deter them. Um, so what kind of capabilities would deter? What kind of capabilities would assure our allies or reassure our allies? Those sorts of things are up in the air but there aren't any sort of big capability gaps. I don't think that the UK is rushing to fill. Uh -huh. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I, I guess when you say the, the the capability priorities are also the the programs, uh, the most difficulties. You were uh, probably also referring to the the delays of the Type Twenty Six uh, anti-submarine warfare frigates. We heard about. I I, I don't think that's a massive problem. Um, I don't have a sense that that's been. There was a a. a there were some issues in, in manufacture, but I think that um, over a period that's considered to be, it's, it's, that one year delay is not considered to be too serious. Mm -hmm. uh, there is, uh, perhaps in France also, but there is a very sort of strange set of expectations about defense projects. Uh, when people have modifications done to their house, they're never surprised when the, the builder is late and over budget. But when someone says, I'm going to deliver a new ship on a particular date for a particular sum of money, they mm -hmm. go, oh, it's terrible. You haven't done it. And, and I think we have to be a bit more realistic. Um, but COVID obviously didn't help. Actually, the, the companies, the defense sector did very well doing COVID at keeping work going. And the delays that are associated with COVID are pretty small. So um, I don't, it's, it's not a sense Mm -hmm. if if the type 26 performs as specified and if it comes into service within a year or so of expectation i i think that will be quickly forgotten um so so you you talked about the, the capability priorities um could you tell us um how much emphasis is given to development of cooperative projects at european level compared to uh off the share procurement where to start um <laughs> There, there is not a particular emphasis on uh, cooperative projects at the European level. Um, I think um, if we think about uh, collaborative projects, um, the number of countries which can make, you know, sort of good collaborative partners is pretty small. Um, 
if you if you think of the qualifications for a, a collaborative project it is you have to be you need people countries that are ready to put up initial capital to fund the development cost you need uh countries that have got a you know a, a very significant and certainly good potential in industrial technological capabilities you need countries that are willing to buy the thing once it's been developed in a number and you need countries that are uh, if you like reliably uh, democratic and well governed so that they're not going to be an embarrassment over a very long period because collaborative projects as you know now when you start to make a list of which countries are eligible then it's it's a pretty short list on the global scale and i think there's a feeling in the uk that we cannot afford to rule out countries just because they they're not uh, european so i think you know collaborative projects the most obvious one is the discussions that are going on with japan but i don't think that's the end of the story there will be other links uh, now for me quite honestly and i i am a european I'd so I, I, I'm certainly one of the unhappy Brits uh, in in this debate. But the idea that we're going to have a sort of single European defence industry that is internationally coherent uh, in terms of the government is is a bit of an ask. Uh, I think that we're a long way away from that. Um, you know, the UK is taking part in very many collaborative projects and continues so to do with suitable European partners. Um, but I, I think that readiness, you know, the, the, the idea that uh, there should be, it can be collaboration must be primarily between Europeans is, is something that's just not, not there. We're going to have to collaborate, and I think this applies to other European countries, with all the qualified ones, that, especially the ones that, you know, meet the political uh, qualification. And also in this equation, of course, is the fact that more and more countries want their own defence industrial capabilities so that... Uh, it's not going to be possible just to sell things simply to countries. They want to participate in the development, and we've got to recognize that. Um, thank you very much. M maybe just to complete this question, would you say that um, there have been um, some uh, consultations with other countries, um, European or non-European countries, about, uh, about uh, the planning and the acquisition of future capabilities, uh, some consultation about... Um, um, you know, like trying to to buy the same equipment, maybe with northern European countries or neighboring countries. Oh, I think these discussions go on all the time. Historically, and I think still today, defense collaborative projects come out of bilateral and trilateral uh, relationships among states, and that that's continued. Always interested in that, you know. So if you look at the partners that are involved in the Meteor project, for instance, it's quite a a, a range of, of of countries that have got an interest in that capability, and and that's going to continue. I mean, the the UK is extremely interested in spreading the costs. Uh, there isn't the um, and 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 also collecting the technology that's available from multiple countries. Uh, so. Um, Collaboration is absolutely, yeah, still, you know, pretty central uh, in terms of how we're thinking about the big projects. Um, now, um, the Type 83, which is the next uh, uh, air defense ship, uh, the next destroyer, that raises questions about, you know, we did try to collaborate with that, with the Type 45 on an earlier version. 
But I think, you know, there will be exploration of collaborative efforts about subsystems on there, not least the missiles, but perhaps other things as well. So, uh, yes, I mean, there, there is, you know, there's, there isn't a great, the emphasis in the UK is um, particularly about operational independence and the ability to, to um, support and modify the systems in your control. So if collaborative projects can deliver that, then they're very welcome. Mm -hmm. And would you say that when emphasis is given to collaborative projects, um, what are the, the preferred bodies? Is it a NATO? Is it a, a bilateral or multilateral frameworks? I think historically you'll find that the frameworks are, are pretty secondary. They have been, you know, they come out of bilateral relationships and things like a Typhoon, you know, they get a NATO heading, but th that's only after you've finished, you know, so, or that's only after you've really set the whole thing up. There, there is quite a readiness and a happiness with using OCAR as a management agency once, you know, the sort of firm skeleton of a project has been established. The kind of attitude, you know, the European Defence Agency, uh, it goes into the divisions within the British political class uh, and perhaps uh, divisions within Europe about how, uh, you know, relations with the UK should be treated um, on, on questions like this. Uh, but, uh, I mean, my general sense is that the the European Defence Agency for, for development work, I'm not talking about the research work that they put together, but the European Defence Agency for collaborative development and production projects doesn't operate on a scale big enough to make a difference. You have to imagine, you know, sort of four or five countries that are thinking about putting a project together, <clears throat> and <clears throat> but they decide not to because they can't quite afford it. Then the marginal piece of money that the EDA can put in swings it, you know, makes a difference. That, I think that's going to be pretty unusual, actually. Um, so, uh, and, and often, you know, always, I, I've been doing this a long time, as you can tell, uh, but always there have been, you know, bodies, whether it was the Euro group or uh, Western European Union and NATO uh, planning, direct, you know, the armaments planning directors and people like that. They've all tried to sort of put um, big, big group efforts together to find common requirements, but in the end, it comes down to, uh, four or five or two or three countries actually getting on and putting the money up. So perfect transition for my last question. Um, do you think that the EU programs on joint acquisition and tools such as EDIRPA should allow non-European equipment acquisitions? Well, I think we, you know, there's a need to be uh, pragmatic and, and sensible. And I think, what are you trying to achieve? The UK is still European. <laughs> that, that, that I, I, I personally find that it's sort of rather distasteful that people think that we're not a European country. Yeah. Um, Actually, I, I was not um, saying that for UK, but more buying um, American or South Korean or Turkish equipment, for example. Ah, I think when it comes to uh, the involvement of, of foreign partners that are um, outside, if you like, the continent of Europe and and. Uh, certainly outside the European Union, then we, we have to be uh, pragmatic, but have some principle. Uh, as I think I you know, explained earlier in this, the, the number of countries that are eligible, useful collaborative partners is quite small. Um, and we can't afford to turn down countries lightly. Um, <clears throat> and that, 
that, that should continue to be the case. From a, a, a British point of view, and I'm sure from a French point of view as well, or from many other European countries, what counts is that when the collaborative project is completed, when the thing is in service, that a country that's that's contributed um, and, um, and and joined in it can actually use that equipment as it sees fit, and that. It, it, it's, the British phrase is about sustain and modify. The British phrase is about operational independence. Now, if we bring in a, <clears throat> an outside partner whose terms and conditions say that we cannot have operational uh, independence with regard to the kit, that there isn't the technology transfer that we associate with uh, European traditional collaborative projects, then that to me would, would be a no-go. Uh, I mean, I would say, frankly, I do not consider the F-35 to be a collaborative project um, <clears throat> because it, it, it doesn't meet those sort of criteria. So I think whether we're thinking about bringing in external partners uh, then and, and partners in a development work, then the criteria should be, do they, do they meet the, you know, the, the, uh, the general criteria that I talked about earlier or the particular ones, and then you know, do they agree that in terms of how the uh, project's going to operate, that at the end of it, everybody gets a system that they genuinely own? Thank you very much, Trevor. And uh, thank you very much for giving us the keys to better understand the British approach on all these topics. Well, I, I hope that was useful and that we, uh, if people find it of value, then that, that's great. Very useful. And um, thank you to uh, our auditors and um, see you soon for the next episode.